Imagine that you're at work right now. If you were sitting at your desk or at your workstation and had to look around, how many things are hindering you from working effectively? Your phone, your email, or maybe it's your chatty coworker. There are plenty of books, articles, and experts out there that say they found a solution. Today, we're going to discuss if you can build up an immunity to these distractions and if there's a way you could handle them better to become a more productive and improved version of yourself. I'm Jose Espinoza. I'm Nicholas Bremner. And you're listening to Mind Your Work, a podcast about social science and work and what happens when you put these things together. If you've ever worked in an office environment, it was probably pretty easy for you to think of some examples of distractions that really derail you during the day. One really good example of that is something we carry on with us pretty much all the time, which is our smartphones. There's actually a recent study done in 2017 that found that when you're doing a a cognitively demanding task, uh, your IQ, as reflected in your, your learning performance, actually goes down depending on how close your phone is to you. So what these researchers did is they had three different conditions. They had people complete a cognitive task and they had them have their phone on the desk in front of them and they had them put it in their pocket or a bag nearby. And then there was another group who had their phone in a completely different room. And what they found is that the mere presence of your phone just nearby, even if it's in your pocket or bag, it actually distracts you to the point where your performance on these IQ tests or these cognitive tests actually go down. So we have all these different factors working against us every single day in the work environment. We've got emails flying at us, we've got notifications, we have people coming by and and chatting with us. And a solution that's really become popular and is really in vogue now, and a term we've all probably heard and are maybe sick of hearing is mindfulness. So what we're gonna talk about today is mindfulness itself and what impact it has on a day-to-day basis in the work environment. Do these interventions work? Are there individual differences in terms of mindfulness? We're really going to break down the evidence and discuss what impact it has, if any, on your day-to-day work environment and your your day-to-day life. So like Nick suggested, if we want to discuss mindfulness and everything that has to do with that, we should probably start with talking about exactly what mindfulness is. And unfortunately, that's not that simple of a topic. Many things get covered under mindfulness. Some of them include things like meditation and yoga, and these tend to be the kinds of things that improve mindfulness. But exactly what we mean by that term is a little harder to pin down. So the easiest way for me to think about mindfulness is it's a way of focusing your attention on a certain object. It's essentially a form of cognitive training. We talk about training our bodies all the time. Everyone goes to the gym. Everyone works out, lifts weights, runs. We're very focused on our bodies, but very few people um, up until recently have actually trained their mind. So really mindfulness is, is a form of training your brain to focus and sustain attention on a given object over time, but then also a way of maintaining open awareness of things around you and not judging them. So things that might distract you or upset you, or you might attach an emotion to them, you're able to actually take that stimulus in, not judge it and let it go rather than attach your attention to it and dwell on it. So I think if we summarize that a bit, mindfulness really seems to be about a couple of things. One of those is we're focusing on purpose. We're doing this deliberately. We're doing this in the present moment. And we're trying not to pass judgment on the things that come to mind and the situations that we're in. Is that fair to say? Yep, absolutely. Probably the best way I've heard mindfulness described was by John Kabat-Zinn. He is really lauded by some as, as the individual who brought 
mindfulness to corporate America and the West. He's a professor emeritus at University of Massachusetts. And so what he says is that someone who has started their day without engaging in mindful practice ahead of time is like an orchestra attempting to play Beethoven without actually having tuned their instruments first. So that's all really interesting. But like we said before, this podcast ultimately is about work. So we want to make sure we discuss mindfulness in terms of how it fits into the workplace. One of the things that we're often concerned about is, well, if mindfulness is important and it helps with things like concentration, can we teach people to do it? So things brings up the question as, as to whether mindfulness is a, a trait, something that you can't change, or is it something that maybe you can be trained to improve on? In some of our previous episodes, we've discussed things like personality, things that you seem to be born with that are parts of you. We tend to call these traits or dispositions. And mindfulness has been thought about and talked about from that perspective, the notion that, hey, some people are just naturally more mindful than others, which leaves room for the question of whether we can actually teach people to do these things. So when we're talking about mindfulness as a trait versus mindfulness as more of a, a practice or something you can train. I think the best way to, to think about it is the nature-nurture distinction, which is a really common distinction used in psychology research. Nurture being you acquire traits and behaviors based on how you're raised, what your environment's done for you, essentially. Whereas the nature aspect is really genetic. It's uh, things that are hereditary. Intelligence, for example, is, is something that has quite strong roots in, in genetics and biology. In terms of mindfulness, we have very little information actually about where stable dispositional mindfulness comes from. It appears that there are significant stable differences in terms of whether some people are more mindful than others but we know very little about where that comes from. So the good news is that it seems like you can train people to be more mindful. So for the, most of us who are distracted all the time, it's not the end of the world. But we want to return to exactly what are the kinds of interventions we can implement in the workplace later. Because first, we want to make sure you understand why maybe we should care about mindfulness. There is a little trove of research that suggests that mindfulness does operate on important things that we care about when it comes to work. So we want to cover that next. Okay, so what are some of the main benefits of mindfulness in the workplace that you found? So it turns out that you get much better performance on any kind of task. And there's a huge variety of tasks that require focus. And it seems particularly that the outcome is you make fewer errors. So if you're doing something like long and tedious that requires a lot of concentration, you're able to sustain your focus for longer? Yeah. And I think what's interesting about that, and I literally just thought about this when you mentioned that, is that this suggests that being mindful is not is good, not just for people who would be doing exciting, innovative, creative tasks. It suggests that being mindful would be good for everyone, even people who do mundane tasks. From like a detail orientation perspective and being accurate with like data entry and things like that. Yeah, even for that, it would be beneficial. So it suggests that mindfulness is important across a swath of different jobs. The other thing that they found that I thought was interesting, there's been some studies using fMRIs, so brain scans basically, 
that suggests that people who encounter emotionally salient stimuli, an example of this in the workplace, I would think of something like your boss yelling at you or something being really badly derailed with a project. So emotionally salient would be something that would stress you out or cause a really strong emotional reaction normally. Yeah. Right. And it, and it, it appears that the people who are mindful are actually showing in these brain scans different neural activations. So different parts of their brain are mm. like what we like to say are lighting up in comparison to people who are not mindful. So it's not just that these people who are mindful experience things the same way. They are fundamentally appear to be at, at, a, at a brain level yeah. experiencing things differently than other people. That's interesting. I find that I, when I have stressful experiences at work, I've practiced mindfulness a little bit and it's not really at a state for me right now where it just automatically happens. Sometimes it does, but I find that sometimes if I have a very stressful experience, I will be able to cue myself to kind of engage that intention, that mindfulness. And I'll be like, okay, wait, that was really stressful. However, it is my choice in terms of how I want to deal with this. But yeah. I wouldn't say it's at a point where it's just an automatic response, like a, a root neurological response where I just automatically just kind of like water off a duck's back. There's yeah. like no issue whatsoever. <laughs> I think something that I, that I wanted to mention is, and I'm going to plug the, the handbook of mindfulness here. They, there's one of the chapters that talks about there are some studies that have looked at different levels of mindfulness expertise where at earlier levels of becoming familiar with mindfulness, you have to kind of engage in it very intentionally, like you're mentioning, like. I have to kind of activate that part of myself to say like, hey, I have to be able to deal with this, not judgmentally. It happens. Let's move on from this situation. And there's some suggestion that the, the more expertise you get over time, and they've studied things like Buddhist monks uh, have been in some of the samples they've used. It suggests that that becomes more automatic. The more expertise you get, it becomes second nature. So it definitely suggests that that part of maybe that brain scan portion would not happen right away, but it seems like you can reach that point. The other thing in terms of results that we found is that people who are mindful tend to report lower reactivity to physical and social stressors. And that just generally means that they're less likely to kind of lose control, let's say, uh, in relation to these stressors and that they might be facing. I think something that I read recently, a study that I came out, I, it seems like a good time to bring it up when you're mentioning self-report. So when people meditate, they have different perceptions of themselves. They have different perceptions that their life might be going a little bit better. But there's a study that came out in 2018. It was done on a sample, I believe in the UK. What they found is that my, what they call mind-body practices for like yoga and meditation actually boost something called self-enhancement, which is basically like someone's perceptions of their ego or how great they are. And so they actually did interventions. It was an experiment. They had 93 students do yoga over 15 weeks. And then the, the other experiment, they had about 162 people over four weeks meditating. And they looked at their self-reported sense of self and, and ego before and after. And they found that people who did yoga and, and meditated had much higher perceptions of themselves and thought of themselves as, I guess, as, for the lack of a better term, better than other people. What I find kind of funny about this is that it's the exact opposite intent of what meditation um, and I think like the, the spiritual tradition of, tradition of yoga was trying to achieve, which is like the dissolving of the ego. So meditation is not supposed to be about you. It's supposed to be sitting with things as they are and not being worried about yourself or not, you know, if, if you are embarrassed, it's like, it's fine because it's not all about you. Yeah. And somehow it seems just this study appears to link the, these sort of yoga and these sort of meditation practices with status. Right, exactly. And there's this term that I love 
which is mindfulness, which is essentially the the import of Eastern philosophy and culture and, and mindfulness into the West and basically commercializing it. So it's like you have meditation classes and, and yoga that are like basically at the Starbucks of mindfulness, really, some of these classes. And I think that the original intent of a lot of these things is good, but I think the application sometimes in, in the West is is misapplied so that yoga and mindfulness become more of a status symbol than really an authentic practice. Kind of like think of the person who meditates and, and posts on Instagram. Right. Like hashtag I meditated. Yeah. Like that defeats the purpose of it completely. It's, it's a junk food version of, like you were saying, a mindfulness of, of this kind of very holistic sort of ego dissolving practice. Right, exactly. Yeah. One thing that I do want to bring up is that we have very little research. So some of that stuff that I talked about before tends to be research with the general populace, but there is some research happening with employees and that tends to be with healthcare professionals. And one of the things that I found really interesting as Nick was talking about is that some of the research suggests that actually people who practice mindfulness and are healthcare professionals appear to have increases in empathy. So even though it seems like there's a version of, of mindfulness, maybe it's the way you practice it, maybe it's a kind of, of teachings that you're following that could lead to a, a sense of, of increase in status and maybe an inflation of your ego and a sense of self-enhancement. But there appears to be some evidence, at least, that it, it can also increase your empathy, which is probably a great thing for someone who's dealing with others' healthcare. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's a, I, I think that the big takeaway here is that depending on how you practice it, depending on how consistently you practice it um, and in what kind of spirit you practice it in, it can have kind of mixed effects. It can be positive effects. It can have some kind of holier than thou effects and the effect could be stronger or um, weaker depending on you know how often you do it, right? Because it's really about forming a habit, a positive habit at the end of the day. So mindfulness works. That seems to be the reality. It, it, it affects all of these outcomes that we care about, not just at work, um, but it also seems to affect things that we might want to improve as people in general. So exactly what does a mindfulness intervention look like in the workplace? What does it mean if we want to increase the mindfulness of our employees or as an employer, if you want to implement some sort of program that improves mindfulness in the workplace? Yeah, that's a good question. So when we're citing all this research and talking about the benefits, what are some of the actual interventions that they're using when citing these results? So some of those earlier studies that uh, I was citing, they talk about really short interventions sometimes. like The minimum they talked about things were like four-day programs, 20 minutes at a time. So that's the bare minimum. And they argue that some of these effects, the evidence suggests that they last for months at a time. A more standard program when we're not talking about something that short is the very popular mindfulness-based stress reduction. So this is a program that is really focused on reducing stress at work. And the way that they do this, it's most often it's an eight-week group program. So you tend to be with a small group of people. This can go all the way up to 35 participants, but the suggestion seems to be the fewer people that there are in the group can be helpful. And ideally, you're going to meet weekly for about two and a half hours to three hours. And then you're going to have a six-hour retreat on the weekend between classes six and seven. So almost near the end, you have this retreat and that's actually a six hour silent retreat, which is a really interesting, uh, maybe a really hardcore version of what you can do in terms of a retreat. But that seems to be what is suggested as the typical program. 
And often this requires things like practicing mindfulness at home as homework. They'll assign uh, a sort of, hey, for 45 minutes this week, try to be mindful. And they'll teach you a few techniques to do that. Things like body scanning, sitting meditation, walking meditation, gentle yoga, those kinds of things. Um, But really the program is at least eight weeks if you want to get the full version of that. So, I mean, some of these seem pretty intense, right? I mean, not everyone would necessarily have the interest or time to go on a meditation retreat for, you know, eight hours or even a week or something like that. But there is a little bit of evidence suggesting that application. So like there there are meditation apps that I'm sure many people are familiar with, Headspace being one of the more popular ones. There is some research suggesting that using Headspace for about 10 days and and Headspace allows you to do guided meditations, you know, 10, 15 minutes, kind of whatever amount of time you have available. There's research suggesting that about using this app for about 10 days consistently, it reduced people's stress by about 14% self-report. So I mean, that's, it's good. So I mean, even meditating for short periods of time can actually still have a positive effect on you. And I think we want to stress that mindfulness is a very old concept. It's been around for a very long time, but it's only really recently that we've started to develop really formal interventions for it. So for example, really recently, mindfulness-based cognitive therapy to help people deal with things like anxiety have earned a three out of four rating from the US Department of Health and Human Services. So there seems to be some recognition that these programs are starting to become well-tested enough that we can start recommending it as a general set of treatments. I think if we give it more time and the more research we do, we're going to start developing other ways to do these programs that are not necessarily eight-week groups and are maybe somewhere in between that are still probably efficacious. Yeah, and I mean, it's good that this is happening because in our society, I mean, North American society specifically, we have this culture where we're going all the time and we're seeking to maximize productivity. I mean, uh, the impetus behind this episode and why we're talking about why it's important is because, hey, do you want more productivity? Well, try mindfulness. (laughs) you'll be way more effective. You'll be able to avoid distractions. It's like even the way we're thinking about it right now is, hey, here are the benefits because you'll be a better, more optimal person. But really, I think that a broader benefit of of engaging with mindfulness at, at a societal level is that we can kind of slow things down a little bit. We can view life more holistically and just say, okay, what is really important here? How do you want to live your life? And, you know, a big part of mindfulness is being aware of things that you wouldn't normally be aware of, you know, very simple mundane things. And I think that reduces stress as well, is that if you see joy in the mundane and you see normal things as interesting and you take an interest in the, in the world around you, life is better. That's, that's my perspective anyway. Yeah, and we often don't talk about our own experiences too much, but I think it's worthwhile in this case um, to discuss the fact that Nick and I have both tried to engage in mindfulness practice to some extent or or another over the last few months. And for the time that I tried it, I did find some tangible changes. I found that if I was being really consistent with engaging with the Headspace app, so I was only really doing 10 minutes a day in the morning, I found that I was experiencing things like fewer headaches, which are really common for me. And, and And I realized now that they probably came from stressing and having anxiety about things that were going on in my life. And maybe mindfulness practice was starting to chip away at that. Unfortunately, I can't say that I've stayed on the wagon for too long. It was maybe about two months, but it seemed to, at the time, at least anecdotally, seemed to be working to some extent. So it might be something you'll consider trying. If the concept of mindfulness is interesting to you and you'd like to try and apply it in the workplace, uh, a really good book that I could recommend is called Awake at Work by Michael Carroll. And what he does is essentially takes the the eightfold path of Buddhism 
and he kind of repurposes it and repackages it in a more office-friendly format. And so each chapter is is really short, maybe a page or two pages, and it's a little just kind of snippet on practical ways in which you can apply mindfulness in the workplace for in, in situations that are likely relatable to you. So if that interests you, I encourage you to check it out. Now, this is not homework, but if you've been listening to us since the beginning uh, and you like what you've heard, uh, we'd encourage you to visit iTunes or uh, Spotify. Can you review us on Spotify? Maybe. I'm not too sure. I don't know. If you can, leave us a review. Um, we'd, we'd love to hear your thoughts. Give a review of us to your uh, postman, to someone, uh, and just tell them you heard this really good podcast. <laughs> yeah, and share with your friends. Uh, recommend it, please. We'd really appreciate it. And one other thing we'd like you to do is there is a tradition in some Japanese workplaces where people would get together during the day and they'll exercise, they'll stretch to try and take care of their physical selves. So what we'd like you to do is send us a tweet. What do you think if we tried to implement something like this in your workplace, but instead it was about mindfulness, about taking a few minutes each day as a group to try and engage in meditation or some other practice that might make people more mindful? Do you think that would work? Do you think that people would be open to it? We'd love to hear what you think. I'm Nicholas. I'm Jose. And we'll see you soon. Right? You're so good at doing that editing without yeah. re-recording? Okay. Oh, yeah. All right. I just told, told myself the instructions right now. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> Future Jose, you know what to do. Uh, <laughs> Good job. <laughs> Perfect.